Contemporary debates would lead you to believe that science and religion are eternally at odds with each other. In the territories of science and religion, Peter Harrison interrogates the modern assumptions behind this viewpoint and delineates the story of these categories, science and religion. He shows that understanding these concepts divided as distinct realms of inquiry is a relatively recent history, politically shaped, and often accidental in its construction. In reality, what we conceptualize as these two separate spheres of life were intimately bound up with one another, often in concert in social life. Harrison also warns us about the consequences of projecting our contemporary conceptual spheres back through the past. In our delightful conversation, we discuss ancient Greek philosophy, early Christian thought, natural theology and natural philosophers, conceptions of progress, forms of charity, the professionalization of science, and the creation of scientists. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Peter Harrison. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Christian. It's a, it's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Now, this is a really great book, The Territories of Science and Religion, and we're really excited to talk to you about it. But as is our tradition here, uh, we usually start with a little bit about our authors. So could you tell us a little bit about your training, some of your influences, and how you got interested in the study of religion? Sure. Christian, as an undergraduate, um, I studied uh, biological sciences, um, zoology and, uh, and, and botany mostly. And um, for a few years, I taught science at high school. Um, and it was as a science teacher, I started to get interested in some of the, the philosophical um, and, and religious issues that science, that arise out of, out of the study of science. And so this, this prompted me to do some some part-time university study in religion and philosophy. Um, and my interest in this grew to such an extent that I decided to go back to university and do another bachelor's degree in, uh, in religion and philosophy. And so, uh, so these two interests of science and, and religion were sort of reflected at that level. And then eventually I went on to do, to do a PhD in, in, in history. My work in religion when I went back was actually firstly around the, the theology of religions, which is to do with the question of religious pluralism and then the problem of competing truth claims of world religions. And I, I, I began by studying Karl Barth, and Barth has a famous condemnation of the very idea of religion. And I moved from that sort of theological understanding of some of the difficulties around the concept of religion to um, the work of Cardinal Smith, who also sees religion in a negative light in this sense, that he regards it as a Western construction uh, that generates problems for our understanding of how the religions so-called relate to each other. To cut a long story short, I guess how this relates to the science and religion issue it occurred to me at a fairly early stage in my career that there were some parallels between the problem of religious pluralism insofar as it's a problem that to some degree arises out of the, the concept religion itself, that perhaps the relations between science and religion might also to some extent be functions of the very concepts themselves, that is to say the concepts of science and the concept religion. So although a lot of my work since those early days has been on the history of science-religion relations, this book actually comes back to that, that basic idea that I had quite some time ago, that the problems of how science and religion relate in the present are going to be related to how these concepts themselves emerge in the West. Now, you have a lot of scholarship related to these areas, um, and both together, actually. But can you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge specifically, uh, first as a set of lectures, but then how did you uh, proceed to the book? Can you talk a little bit about how you conceptualize this in relation to your larger research trajectory and how you put it together in this form? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, as I say, it, it does go back to this this problem of 
religion as a Western category, which is where I started thinking about, uh, as I said, thinking about the problems so-called of religious pluralism. But then in the intervening interval, I got very interested in religious influences on the rise of modern science. And so I've got a couple of books, a couple of monographs on the topic of ways in which religion had a, a, a positive impact on the emergence of science. So that, and the, basically the thesis there, very crudely speaking, is you know, that one of the key variables in Western culture um, that gives it an account of why science emerges in the West when it does, one of those key variables is a particular uh, complex of religious conditions. And so that religion actually is one of the key things that accounts for the fact that we get science in the West, we get modern science in the West at the time we do and we don't get it uh, anywhere else. So I was I was working on that and, and I got the invitation quite a few years ahead. I, the, the Gifford lectures I gave in 2011 and I think I got the, the invitation several years before that. For those of you listeners who don't know, the, the Gifford lectures is, is something of an intimidating thing insofar as some of the most famous people, uh, thinkers in the world, have got to give them over the past 150 years or so. And so uh, it, it was very, uh, it certainly focused the mind to think, well, w- what, what can you say in this context that might, might be a significant contribution? So I really marshaled all those resources to do with both my historical understanding of the emergence of modern science and my earlier work on the emergence of our modern conception of religion and brought those two research streams together. And as I've I've said already, that really then this formed the core of the book, which which incorporates some of my work about religious influences on the emergence of modern science. But the the underlying argument is really about the ways in which uh, our idea of science and our idea of religion constrain our present understandings about how they relate to each other. And it's a great synthesis of your work. The The book is really very readable and uh, very easy to follow, and uh, but detailed at the same time. You set the stage, so to speak, uh, with the categories science and religion, thinking about them in relation to maps and territories. And part of the claim here is... Uh, understandings of these concepts as divided into distinct realms of inquiry is a relatively recent history, it's politically shaped, and it's often accidental in its construction. Can you tell us a little bit about the assumptions behind these claims, um, how they counter popular understandings of religion and science, and how this kind of underlies uh, the trajectory of the book? Sure. I mean, perhaps if, if, if I allude to the analogy that I, I begin the book with, as, as you've said, uh, Christian, I do talk about science and religion as carving out particular territories. And the analogy I use at the start of the book is, is if we think about if a historian were to make the claim that sometime in the 1600s there was, uh, um, there was a war between Israel and Egypt we'd immediately know that that was wrong. And we'd know that that was wrong because Egypt and Israel did not exist uh, as such in the 17th century. Both of those territories were part of something else, namely the Ottoman Empire. And so the idea of, of this kind of national warfare um, is, is a complete nonsense. Now, it doesn't follow from that that the territories that we presently understand of constituting Israel and Egypt were not there. Obviously, the geography was there, the places are there, but they were not bounded in such a way that would make any kind of national relationship or national tension or national warfare between them. It, that, that just makes no sense. And my argument is that the same is true about our conceptions of science and religion, that in the past... Although the activities that we presently understand as scientific and religious certainly existed, they weren't categorised in such a way that would make the kind of relationship that they presently have possible. Now, just like the boundaries of the modern state of Israel, these things, just to the, the way in which we get our boundaries around science and religion are also to some extent determined by historical circumstances and particular actions politics, 
some geography perhaps, but once we understand the history of how the boundaries of Israel came to be um, determined in the modern period, we then get an understanding of the kinds of problematic relationships that exist in the Middle East owing to these historical circumstances. And so too, I argue, with science and religion, we tend to think of religion as some universally innate capacity of human beings, but in fact, religion is not a natural kind, as it were, at least this is what I argue, but religion is an idea that is quite specific and it emerges in the modern West in the early modern period. So too for science that people in the past certainly studied nature in formal ways, but they didn't refer to the formal study of nature as science. And the words here are very important, um, just as they are with religion. So just, for example, the word religion hardly ever occurs in the New Testament. It's not a significant term throughout the Middle Ages in in Christian self-understanding, but from the 17th century, we see this word religion starting to appear, um, and this signifies that the concept is starting to become important. Now, so too with science, that, that in the past... There is a use of this term um, scientia, but it doesn't map onto our modern understanding of the natural sciences. Instead, people talked about natural philosophy or natural history or the mixed mathematical sciences. And the boundaries of these activities are very different from modern science. And so, for example, natural philosophy would typically include some reference to God and to human souls and to things like that. Natural history was a purely descriptive discipline. It wasn't at all causal. So it's a very different thing from modern biology. So we can actually trace the word usages and get some sense of when our modern concepts come into being. Um, and, And science, I argue, just as religion really is not a significant concept in the West until the early modern period, the 17th century. So our In English, our modern conception of science doesn't actually emerge until the 19th century. And science, as we understand it, as the formal study of the natural world with various subdivisions, you know, biology and zoology and chemistry and so on. These things are only amalgamated into science in in the 19th century. And the argument, one of the arguments of the book is that, therefore, the possibility of a relationship between science and religion emerges only from the 19th century on once we have these conceptions firmly locked in place. And just as, for example, Israel can't have a relationship with Syria until the 1950s when we actually have the modern state of Israel with the particular boundaries that it has, so too the book argues we can't have anything like a modern relationship between science and religion until we have the boundaries drawn around these concepts in the way in which we presently understand them. Now, as you're moving along here, many people point to ancient Greek philosophy as a key component in the role of the history of science. Can you tell us a little bit about how Greek antiquity is presented in popular histories of science and how Greek thinkers approach the study of nature in relation to moral questions that we might think of as more philosophical or even religious? Sure, yeah. I I think standard accounts of the history of science will will talk about, sometimes they'll talk about Egypt or ancient Babylon, but it's really the pre-Socratic philosophers that people argue that we first have what looks like a scientific approach to the natural world. And the argument goes something like this, that what's distinctive about the ancient Greeks is that they dispense with mythological conceptions of nature and they move to rationalistic speculations about the natural world. That's the, that's the standard kind of view. Now, on my argument, that, that historical story involves a projecting back of our modern conception of science onto the ancient Greeks. And if we look carefully at what's, what, the actual, what the ancient Greeks are actually doing And this is a fairly broad generalisation, but if we look back to what they're actually doing, these so-called scientific activities are actually embedded within a much broader philosophical project. And the aim of the philosophical projects of of antiquity are really to do with moral formation. Again, this is is something of a a generalisation, but I think overall it's true. So that what look like scientific activities 
are actually directed towards something much more like spiritual exercises. Um, and so the, the study of nature is pursued in order to bring about some kind of moral formation of the individual. And so if we look at a classic, say, you know, classic work of um, ancient astronomy, Ptolemy's Almagest, right at the very beginning, what he says there is, the reason we study the regular motions of the heavens, which are divine, is so that within ourselves we can start to become uh, regular in our, in our passions and we become more godlike and more divine. So we study the heavens in order for this process of deification or theosis to take place uh, within us. And that, that, I argue, was a fairly standard way in which the study of nature was incorporated into a much broader, um, uh, you know, to, to use an overused word, spiritual uh, project or spiritual or moral project. And so when, when, the, when Christian thinkers come to engage with ancient philosophy, they don't engage at the level, well, they partly do, but the, the primary level of engagement is not to do with conflicting doctrinal claims between ancient philosophy and, say, Christianity. Rather, there's an understanding that ancient Greek philosophy is really aiming at the same kind of thing. It's really aiming at making the individual a better person. And so ancient philosophy is regarded as a kind of rival spiritual practice that's inferior uh, in many respects to, to Christianity. And so Christianity takes over from ancient philosophy the goals of moral formation that were once part of um, that, that tradition. Now, in this chapter, you also uh, give us a snapshot of early Christians in relation to this concept of religion. So can you tell us a little bit about what is Christianity at this time? And if there was no quote-unquote religion... How do they conceptualize their commitments and activities? Sure. Look, again, again a, a good question. And as I said before, what, what's interesting about, say, the New Testament, and indeed I think the canonical documents of, of most of the so-called religions, is that the word religion or equivalence to it don't occur. Now, in the New Testament, um, when Jerome chose to translate the New Testament into Latin, um, he does use religio on a few occasions, and he, he uses it to translate the Greek word threskaya, which really means something more like religiosity or piety. And there's a passage in, in uh, the, the book of James where this, this word is used to describe true religion, as it turns out in Jerome's Latin uh, version of the Bible, true religion, but it consists in visiting widows and orphans. So it, it's really charitable acts or pious activities that that what that count as religio. And if we look at how religio is used in the Latin literature of the time, it, it typically tends to refer to practices of either practices of worship in that external aspect, or it refers to an internal piety. And if we look at how the church fathers when they use the term Christian religion, and here it's important to understand that although you can translate the Latin as the Christian religion or as Christian religion, I think Christian religion is the better translation. And what they mean by Christian religion is a particular form of religiosity or piety that is Christ-like. And so Augustine will say, and this May, may surprise um, those of your listeners who are familiar with Augustine. Augustine will say something like, true Christianity um, existed from the beginning of time. And clearly what he means by that is that Christianity doesn't entail subscription to a set of creedal formulae or particular sets of doctrines, but Christian religion is really a Christ-like piety that can exist even before uh, the, the Christian incarnation. Now, to some extent, this gets complicated because, of course, we have the we have the councils of the church making very very clear doctrinal statements. You know, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, and I think this has led many historians to think that from this time, Christianity is regarded as a set of beliefs, 
that are enshrined in the creed. But in fact, you know, for most of the, the, the Middle Ages, being a Christian was essentially about being a member of the church. And being a member of the church was something that took place through the sacraments, crucially baptism, becoming a member, member of the church. And being a Christian was to do with being part of the sacramental life of the church, much less about the the profession of explicit belief. And it's precisely this that the Protestant reformers were to object to in, in part of their complaints about how medieval Catholicism had moved away from what Christianity was supposed to be. And Protestant reformers will say implicit belief, and this is essentially that the laity did not have to express uh, or profess explicit religious beliefs, but simply trust that the church had got that doctrinal bit right, the Protestants were, were very much against this conception of implicit belief and insisted that to be truly Christian, you, need to, you had to give explicit profession of beliefs. You needed to know the propositional content of Christianity. Um, and for this reason, at least, at the end of a long argument, my claim is that, that this propositional conception of religion, the idea that religion consists in specific beliefs and to a lesser extent practices, this is a modern idea and part of, only one part, but part of the signal for that is this criticism that we see uh, in the Protestant Reformation of the implicit belief of medieval Catholicism and an insistence that people uh, be aware of the propositional content of their religion. Uh, and from there on, um, in addition to this, of course, in post-Reformation, we get various versions of Christianity distinguished in terms of their propositional contents or their various creedal formulations. And then subsequently, these religious differences are projected onto the world at large. And in essence, we get, again, cutting a long story short, the creation of something like the world religions. Now, before we get there, in your book, you take a snapshot of the Middle Ages and thinking about how science and religion fit in there. And here you focus uh, at one point on what's called the Book of Scripture and the Book of Nature um, as two sources of knowledge, so to speak. So could you talk about what these two sources are, what was their relationship, and what could they reveal to readers, so to speak? Sure. So the two, the two, books, the two books metaphor that God has revealed himself through two sources, nature uh, and the book of Scripture. is a very old idea. We, we find it in the Church Fathers. We find it in Augustine, for example. Uh, and it's a very popular idea right through the 17th and 18th centuries and into the, into the 19th century. Um, but my argument is it actually changes its meaning in, around the time of the 17th century. Um, if we look at how the Church Fathers use this idea of the book of nature. Essentially, and if we take, take the church father Augustine um, as, as an example, um, it, what, what Augustine argues is that God has kind of embedded truths within the natural world. And the key to understanding these truths is that we read the book of Scripture first. And what we find in the book of Scripture, in, in order to determine its meaning at the literal level, we understand that a word refers to a particular object. And once we've done that, we've got the literal sense of Scripture. But as Augustine and, and other and the Greek fathers would argue, God has actually embedded objects with meaning too. And so in order to come to a, a deeper level of understanding, we need to understand the meanings of the objects that God has created. And this, in essence, is the basis of allegorical interpretation. So for literal readings, we understand that a word in Scripture refers to an object. But for an allegorical reading, we need to go out to the world and understand the meanings of the objects there. And the objects symbolize various theological truths. And so Augustine famously thought that there was a triune structure in the, in the human mind, and that reflects something of God's own triune nature. Later in the Middle Ages, the the, uh, the Franciscan thinker Bonaventure was to say that that there are we, we can see the image of God everywhere in the natural world. 
So my argument, my argument in the book is that the book of the reading of the book of scripture and the reading of the book of nature from the patristic period, the time of the church fathers, through much of the Middle Ages, certainly till the 12th century, um, uh, the thir- 12th and 13th centuries, we have a strongly symbolic conception of the natural world and the, the content of the book of nature maps very directly onto the content of the book of scripture. But this will change, I think, again in the early modern period. And here the reformers are part of this story too. So not merely are they down on this notion of implicit faith, but they're also uh, not very keen on this idea of allegorical interpretation, partly because they want Scripture to be the, the main authority in matters of doctrine. And if that's to be the case, it's the literal sense that's going to be the most important. But one of the... Uh, one of the consequences of this shutting down of allegorical interpretation is that it actually shuts down the meanings that are embedded in the natural world. And so when we look at Book of Nature images after the 17th century, we find a very different conception of the religious significance of the natural world. Now natural objects are not no longer imbued with particular theological meanings What we now look for is evidence of design, and design then gives us not a direct reading of theological truths, but a set of premises on which we can base an argument to say, well, the world is structured in such a way that there must be a God because the world has this intelligibility, uh, natural things appear to be designed. And, And as I say, I think this is a very important shift. So in both cases, we have a notion of a book of scripture and a book of nature. But the way we read the book of nature after the 17th century is very different. And again, part of my argument about uh, how modern science arises is that it's this collapse of the medieval allegory that makes possible a new way of seeing the intelligibility of the world which is initially theologically motivated because people are attempting to find evidence of God's design and wisdom and goodness in the natural world, Uh, and they do this by studying the the structures, the laws of nature and the particular uh, structures of living things. And therefore, the design argument becomes a very important uh, part of the study of nature from the 17th to the 19th centuries. Now, you've already pointed to this in our conversation, but in the book you, you spend a, a, a great deal of time on the Reformation period, and here we have uh, skepticism and experiment, experimentation and discursive shifts in terms of uh, what the role of tradition, uh, specific religions are, um, how the study of the natural world can happen. So what socio-historical changes were happening during this period and how did they affect how people understood avenues to knowledge uh, or the types of activities they were involved in in terms of science and religion? Sure. Look, I mean, one one part of the story that, that I should probably mention um, that, that I haven't hitherto is that if, if we look at the Latin equivalents of our word science and religion, scientia and religio, when we look at how they're treated in a thinker like Aquinas, a 13th century, probably the most important religious thinker of the Middle Ages, for Aquinas, both religio and scientia are virtues. So they're not things, as we, they're not things out there in the world as we think of them. They're particular dispositions within the human person. And, and thus, science and religion, scientia and religio, are understood within the framework of a particular understanding of virtue. And so my suggestion, as I've just, what I've just talked about in terms of allegory, is that when we get a new approach to an understanding of Scripture, this will necessitate a very new understanding of the natural world because if we do away with allegory, the natural world no longer has objects that refer and we need to find another way of thinking about nature and that way is scientific. In the virtue space, what happens is, again, that there's critique, partly on the part of the Protestant reformers, of this classical understanding of virtue, which goes right back to Aristotle. Luther, in particular, was not a fan of Aristotle and Aristotelian thought. And part of it, an attack on virtue, is because 
it's the, the idea of habit and virtue that Protestant reformers associate with an understanding of justification and merit that they, they vehemently disagree with. Now, whether they got the medievals and Aristotle right on this, in, on this is, is another question, but this is what they thought. And as a consequence, the idea of virtues, in a sense, is taken over by different, a, a new, new sets of moral understandings. And so we have a move away from virtues to uh, divine, uh, divine command theories of ethics, and eventually we'll have ver- versions of utilitarianism, which looks at the consequences of acts rather than the motivations of the agents. Now, this is a kind of long way round way of saying that if there's an attack on the virtues and scientia and religio are understood as virtues, then these these things will change their meaning significantly. And so I argue that when scientia and religio are no longer understood as in, internal virtues, we have for the first time the, the prospect of understanding them as something external to us, no longer as internal virtues, but something out there in the world. And this will eventually um, give rise to science in the modern sense, and that doesn't happen until the 19th century. But again, as I've, as I've already alluded to, um, this the notion that religio is not a virtue, but it's actually something outside of us, is part of what motivates um, a, a new conception of of religion. Um, now, there's a there's a lot more to the story. I think the, the other, another key part of what happens in the 17th century, and this is the period we associate with the scientific revolution, is that we we get a new set of motivations for studying the natural world in religious terms. And I've already given one of these, which is the idea that we find evidence of divine design in the natural world. So we don't see God's image in nature, but we see evidence of his power, for example, which is, this is how Francis Bacon, a 17th century English thinker, is very important for the emergence of modern science. This is how he puts it. And Francis Bacon also has another conception of why we ought to study nature, and that is that we, for Bacon, we need to re-establish the dominion over the natural world that we lost as a consequence of the fall. And so here is the idea that in our original perfection, uh, human beings enjoyed a dominion over the natural world just as they enjoyed an internal dominion over uh, their, their fractious passions and desires, as it were. When we fell away from our original perfection, we lost both our dominion over nature and we lost this moral internal dominion. And Francis Bacon says... What religion can do is it can help us get ourselves back together. And indeed, this is part of that whole classical understanding of philosophy as a version of moral formation. But he also says what we need is the sciences to help us re-establish a literal, physical, material dominion and control over the natural world. And so we have a new religious impulse for studying and mastering nature that becomes a key part of the legitimation of modern science. But again, all of this is part of a kind of shift away from internal virtues to a stuff that's out there, as it were, in the world. And tied to this idea of uh, a shift from internal to external is the, uh, I guess we could call, multiplication of a singular religion to uh, plurality um, so could you talk a little bit about how do we get from religion to multiple religions during this time? Um, what did that mean and what were some of the challenges that a plurality of religions posed for, uh, I guess, Christians at the time? Sure. Well, I, th- I think, again, here the Reformation is really a, a key event because here for the first time, um, if we neglect the Great Schism with, with uh, when Greek, orthodoxy separated out. Here for the first time, certainly within Western Christendom, we have the idea of competing traditions within Christianity that subscribe to different sets of beliefs. And and part of this objectification of religion comes about because the political settlements in post-Reformation Europe require people to be identified with a particular tradition. 
initially this is Lutheran, Catholic, Calvinist. And so the political division of Europe, which takes place along religious lines, requires an objective understanding of what those religious differences are. And so, again, my argument is that for the first time then we have the idea that we have these distinct religions that can be distinguished on the basis of their propositional contents. Now, because this period roughly coincides with a period of discovery and colonisation, we have a discovery of uh, exotic peoples, as it were, and they seem to be doing stuff that looks very much like our Western religions, and so they get incorporated into this pluralistic religious map of the world, as it were, and so the disunity of Western Christendom is projected onto the world at large, and again, cutting a rather complex and long story short, this gives rise to notions of plural religions, and we see this in the proliferation of terms like Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, which over the 18th and 19th century become increasingly um, reified and um, specified ways of understanding um, the religious lives of uh, other peoples around the globe. Now, of course, the question is whether these peoples understood themselves as subscribing to religions in that Western sense. Uh, And I think the anthropological evidence is that at that time they did not And so, again, this was an imposition of a new concept that had come to the West, but now exported or projected onto the world at large and giving rise to these plural uh, religions. Now, as we place ourselves in the early modern period, another key factor here, you argue, is the notion of progress. So how was progress understood at this moment, and how did new conceptions of progress shape understandings of science as Uh, science and religion as uh, individuated concepts? Sure. Well, I think there are two two parts to this story. And one is that that, um, if you look at how the term progress is used in the Middle Ages and to some extent in the early modern period, progressus refers to moral progress of the individual. Um, And that's how it's understood. And to some extent, there's there's not much conception of historical progress. That is to say, we don't really think history is going anywhere. Now, that changes again. I keep going back to the early modern period as being a key time. But we start to get, from for the first time uh, in the 17th and more particularly the 18th centuries, a notion that history itself is progressing. And the kind of version you get, let's say if we move to the 19th century, the kind of version we get is that this historical progress can be understood as a progress away from religion. And so enlightenment understandings of history and then subsequently uh, positivist understandings of history in the 19th century tend to think about history is having a kind of inherent teleology or direction where we start with superstition and magic and that becomes more formalised into something like religion and then we move to something better, a more formalised philosophy and ultimately we end up with a scientific, um, we are in a scientific stage. And the idea is that all human societies are at some point along this evolutionary scale of, of social development. The most famous version of this is Auguste Comte's um, tripartite understanding of history where he says, you know, we, we move from religion to a metaphysical stage to a positive or a scientific stage. Uh, and, of course, in the West, we're well down the track, we're towards science, but other places are kind of stuck back in this, uh, this more primitive religious stage. Now, once you get this, this particular progressive understanding of history up and running, um, the history of science essentially writes itself because you get this idea that, you know, in, at every stage of society there is a, an attempt to arrive at something like science, um, but it doesn't happen for various reasons, and typically the reason it doesn't happen is because religion stops it from happening. And so to go back to where we started with the ancient Greeks, you get an idea that here we have a false start of science 
it would have gone somewhere, but Christianity comes along and then we get the so-called dark ages that shut science down and it's only when science manages to liberate itself from the, the, uh, the stultifying influence of religion that modern science becomes possible. And, and so basically you get an alignment of this progressivist understanding of history with the idea, in essence, of secularisation that says... Uh, all human societies are destined for a kind of secular endpoint, and science is the engine that makes that possible, and religion is the thing that inhibits that. And then again in the 19th century, this will give rise to what historians call the conflict myth. Uh, so a, a part of this progress story is that there's a perennial conflict between the forces of science uh, and the enlightened, the enlightened forces of science and the repressive forces of religion and so that the, the pattern of progress is one where science ultimately will triumph but its, its triumph has, has, has uh, always been um, has always been resisted and opposed by the forces of religion Now one interesting aspect here in, in terms of this idea of progress and science leads to material progress and therefore it's more useful or authoritative there was a pushback in in christian notions of charity um so where did charitable efforts fit into the debates about progress and what forms did charity take during this period sure well again i think this this if we think about religio and scientia as virtues, of course, charity, Christian charity, was one of, in the Middle Ages, classified as one of the three theological virtues. So faith, hope, and love, or faith, hope, and charity were the theological virtues. Now, we have a very different conception of charity now as a set of acts that you know, give rise to um, you know, where we, we typically financial transaction that we we're engaged in these activities that are external activities that might be motivated by some internal virtue, but nonetheless they're external. And again, then, this is part of a pattern of an externalisation of virtue. And Fra Francis Bacon, who I spoke about earlier, is one of the first people to, to want to speak about charity not as an internal quality or a virtue within people, but as a series of, of acts and, and for, for, for Bacon, um, this is really Christian, charitable acts are the Christian virtue of charity in action. And again for Bacon, the motivation for pursuing science and our control of the natural world, our motivation for doing this should be Christian charity. Um, and, and again, this is a, a key part of the religious legitimation of scientific activity. So, so Francis Bacon wants to set up scientific activity as an outworking of the virtue of Christian charity. Uh, but in the process of this taking place, the, 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 the label charity moves from the internal disposition to the set of outward activities that, that originally resulted from it. So you've got a so there, so there are two aspects to this. One is to do with the legitimation of science in terms of an outworking of the Christian virtue of charity. And the other is this gradual objectification of the virtues, which we see already in the case of religio. Now we see it in the case of the theological virtue charity, where it becomes identified with some uh, objective set of acts out there in the world. Now, as you move into the 19th century, you have really the uh, emergence of the early stages of what we think of as modern science. And you argue that part of the construction of this concept is related to uh, a set of specific practices or methods, um, mm -hmm. the professionalization of individuals, and the marking of clear boundaries of what science is and what it is not. How did the modern concept of science develop in, in these spheres in the 19th century? Sure. Look, again, one of the things I use to trace these, these shifts is just to look at how people are using particular words and, and words like science. And as I've said already, people don't start 
to use the term science in our modern sense, in English context at least, until, until the 19th century. But there are two other key indicators, I think. And one is the word scientist, which again is a word that's invented in the early 19th century. Practitioners of science are actually quite loath to take it on. They don't like the sound of this word science, but scientist, I should say. But by the end of the 19th century, the, the use of the term scientist in English and to some extent equivalence in other European languages is widespread. And part of my argument here, and there's other, other sociological evidence for this, but, but the, the terminology is a, is a useful indi- indicator. Part of, part of what this signals is that we have now a notion of people engaged in the same kind of activity such that we can give them this label, scientist. And so the, 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 the frequency of use of this expression, scientist, indicates the professionalisation of a particular group of activities. Um, uh, the, the other one, I think, it, that's interesting is the notion of a scientific method, which, again, we have, we have before this an idea of induction, as being a, which is a form of our argumentation, as being a key part of science. But we don't have anything known as the scientific method. And, again, if we look at the frequency of this expression increasingly over the 19th century, we get the idea that there is a single set of methods that we can roughly call the scientific method. And so science comes to be distinguished not only by its inherent activities, that is the formal study of nature, but by the group of people who were practising it, namely scientists, who are supposedly engaged in or using or utilising this set of methods that, again, is supposedly common to all of the so-called sciences, which is to say the scientific method. And so a range of disparate practices that in the 19th, beginning of the 19th century fell under various labels like natural philosophy and natural religion and mixed mathematics and mechanics, all of these things are aggregated under this new umbrella, science, and they're unified by this particular profession, the scientist, and also this supposedly common set of, of methods that, that uh, are regarded as ways of generating authoritative and reliable knowledge that was called the scientific method. Now, you end the book looking at the present moment and kind of reflecting on um, partly what is assumed to be this uh, inherent conflict between religion and science, which at, by this time in the book you've, you've clearly demonstrated is a, is a contemporary myth. Um, so what are some of the possibilities for deploying these politically defined categories today is a clear dichotomy between religion and science the only possibility? So here's, here's the question, I suppose. Given, given we have these historical developments that give us a modern conception of science and this modern conception of religion and my argument that actually some of the tensions or some of the apparent tensions between them are a function of the concepts themselves, is it possible to retreat to an, an understanding that's pre-modern in a way, that would, would would help us solve those conflicts. Now, I don't think this is realistic in the case of science it, it, because our understandings of science and scientific practice and professionalisation are, so, uh, are, are so embedded in our institutions that I don't think it's possible. What, what I do think we need to understand, though, is that science is really... Uh, there are a multitude of activities that go under that label and there are a whole range of different methods and subject matters. And to that extent, simply to talk about religion and science as if it's even possible to talk about a relationship is a big mistake. And that, that I think, is one thing we can certainly say. We need to think about plural sciences and each of them, because they have different methods and subject matters, uh, each of them has it, their own relation to particular religious claims. Clearly the same will be the case with religion because we have plural religions and, and, and the, the, the propositional contents of the religions uh, are quite different. I also want to suggest that if we look at the traditions of Western Christianity themselves, the propositional approach is not the only way to go. We know this historically and I think there's more room to move on our understandings of religion than there is in our conceptions of, of science. Uh, 
So one of the take-home messages is not merely that the idea of an enduring conflict is a myth. You know, historians have known this for a while, and we have to keep telling that story. But So that's certainly the case. But in the present, we, we can't think that there is a single kind of relationship between science and religion either. Partly, and, and this is largely to do with the plurality of the sciences and the artificiality of thinking that there is a unified approach or way of doing knowledge that we can call science. There just isn't. There's a whole lot of different things going on there. Um, and, and I'm hoping that that's one, one way of, of shaking up um, some of the misconceptions that presently exist about what, what we, we call um, crudely uh, science-religion relations. Well, Peter, this is an excellent book, and I hope listeners will pick it up. But I'm sure people are also eager to hear about what you're working on now. Well, um, I've got, I've, the, the, the big project that I'm engaged in um, is, is, a, is a project funded, funded by the Australian government uh, under a, a fellowship scheme um, on science and secularisation. So here the thesis has been something like this, that, that modern science is an agent of secularisation, that, that there's a decline in the plausibility of religious beliefs uh, and there's a decline in religious practice. And one argument goes that science is the cause of these things. So the project is, is really asking a, a whole range of questions. Firstly, is secularisation taking place? And if so, where? Uh, but what then is the relation of science as a causal variable in relation to these changing patterns of, of religious practice and belief? Um, and we're looking at this from historical and sociological Perspectives, and so uh, here at the at the institute um, at, in advanced studies in the humanities, uh, we've got a team of researchers, me and a number of postdocs and uh, PhD students, who are all working on different aspects of this this uh, very big question. Well, good luck. It sounds like a giant project. Thanks. Yes, yes, it is. It's a lot of fun. Well, thanks again for making time to talk to us about this book as well. Thanks, thanks, Christian. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Peter Harrison about his great new book, The Territories of Science and Religion, published with University of Chicago Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.